Well, good morning. Let's begin this morning, if we would, by turning in the Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Good to see all of you today. And uh, I'll ask you to stand one more time. And we're going to look at several texts today, but uh, I want to begin by just reading this text together. Let's stand and read it in unison. 1 Timothy 1, 8-17. through We're going to read this text and then we'll come back to it at the very end of our time together this morning. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent person, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of Ages, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, this morning as we look into Your Word, please show us Your estimation of our sin. Please show us Your estimation of the sin of homosexuality. Help us all to see ourselves as You see us, apart from Christ. And then, Father, comfort us in the Gospel. Comfort us in the saving righteousness of Christ, in the saving atonement, in the resurrection, in the perfect person of Christ. May it be for us a clear testimony of Your righteousness, and Your forbearance, and Your mercy and grace. May it draw our hearts to worship You. May it, enable, may it cause us to think rightly about sin and rightly about the Gospel. We ask that You would change us through this study today and equip us to be able to communicate these same things to others in our community and our circles of, of life. We ask Your blessing. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, we've been working our way through a series together called The Bible and Homosexuality. 
And so far we've talked, we began with a message about why the church must talk about homosexuality. And we listed several reasons for that. And then we talked last week about the Bible's view of marriage, which is obviously the very important backdrop to understanding why then homosexuality is a violation of God's will. This morning, we need to take the next step in the series, and I want to present to you Scripture's evaluation of homosexuality and answer the question from the Word of God, why does the Bible condemn homosexuality? Or it really answer the question, does the Bible condemn homosexuality? Now you might think as you hear that question, well, it's kind of an obvious answer, isn't it? And it, and it should be, but, but it isn't to many, many people. For example, if you were to look up um, the statistics that Pew Research Center gives, um, that in 2014, about eight years ago, a poll showed that 70% of, of Roman Catholic people say that homosexuality should be accepted by society. Um, 66, 66% of mainline Protestants say that homosexuality should be accepted by society. 62% of what is called Orthodox Christians. And 54, 54% of all Christians. I guess that's kind of surprising, isn't it? that they would look at this and consider, maybe consider what the Scripture says and come to that conclusion. So, so what is our answer to that question? Does the Bible actually condemn homosexuality as sin? It, what's your answer to that? Because it really makes all the difference in the world of how you're going to communicate the Gospel to different folks that you might run in con- come in contact with in your, in your workplace, in your family, in, in your neighborhood. Does the Bible actually condemn homosexuality? Apparently, most of the professing church doesn't think so. And so we're going to look at what the Old Testament has to say specifically about homosexuality today, and also the New Testament. So if I asked you, where in the Bible does God directly deal with that issue, do you know where to go? Do you have those texts in your mind that you can... Bring someone to and show them God's Word on this. And that's very important for all of us as people of Christ's church to be equipped to be able to communicate the truth in love. And whatever the Bible says about this, we must wholeheartedly believe. That's, that's the first part of our worldview, right? Is that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant Word of God. So what it says what, is what God says, is what God thinks. And we can trust it to be absolutely true, no matter what the world or the professing church may say. So if you trace the texts of Scripture uh, that deal directly with homosexuality, you'll come to six. Six major texts. And it's those texts that we're going to look at today, Lord willing. There's, There's three in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament. And I want all of us to have an adequate grasp of these texts so that You're not unclear, we're not unclear in our thinking about what God thinks about homosexuality. We can't, when you come to the place where you're talking with someone and you love them and you want to share the gospel with them and they're, and they're hurling, you know, arguments at you, you need to be clear about what God thinks about these things so that you're not scrambling and you, you, you feel the, the pressure to, to, 
put emotional force back on that person. Emotional force doesn't go anywhere good, right? It's just the truth of God's Word. Clearly, calmly, confidently spoken that God uses. So I need, you know, God, God calls us to be unclear, or to be absolutely clear in our thinking about what He, what He thinks about homosexuality. But also, as you respond to homosexuality, you need to know these texts so that you do not depend on your own personal feelings in response or another person's perspectives or the opinions of your friends or the opinion of your culture to which you most easily relate. We don't want our arguments to be, well, this is, this is just the way it is. It's what's comfortable to me. You know, no, no, that, that's not, that's not any, any kind of clear truth. Instead, we need to depend upon the Scripture alone to give the answer to the question. And really, again, like I said, so that you may be equipped to speak the truth in love to someone who is living a homosexual lifestyle or is promoting a homosexual agenda. I also want to mention before we begin looking at these texts today that there are a number of arguments given in response to what I'm going to share with you today. Um, there have been many attempts by those who would promote the homosexual lifestyle to interpret what the Bible says about homosexuality uh, in, in a different way, to reinterpret it, or to dismiss God's Word altogether. And it's, it's important that we look at those answers too, but we're not going to do that this week. We're going to do that next week, because I don't think we can do both in one sermon unless you'd rather be here for two hours. But we're going to look at the text today, look at the text, and then we'll kind of readdress some of them next week as we look at the answers that the homosexual agenda has given over the years. My aim today is very simple. It's to show you that the Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as sin, but it is a sin that can be completely forgiven by our merciful and gracious God. I'm going to take you through these six texts, and at the very end, I'll show you how the Gospel answers the, the need of any sinner, including the homosexual. <clears throat> Number one, two main points in outline. The Old Testament clearly condemns homosexuality as sin. And number two, the New Testament clearly condemns homosexuality as sin. Let's look at the Old Testament texts. And you can certainly turn along with me in your Bible or you can look up here. The first text that it comes to clearly addressing homosexuality is Genesis chapter 19 and verses 1-29. through 29. And I'm going to read this text to us and then just point out some of the progress of this text. Let's just look at this. Take it for what it is. Genesis 19.1 The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself and his face to, with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please, turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, no, we, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house but he made them a feast, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, 
surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn as he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law? Sons? Daughters? Or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, Up! Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved? And he said to, that, to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. 
What a sobering story, is it not? You see God's pronouncement of judgment and in Abraham's prayer in the previous chapter, God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy these cities for their sin. Abraham pleaded with God to rescue the righteous in them. Not that Lot and his family were sinless, but that God had declared them righteous. And then when we come to these chapters, you see the angel's arrival and Lot's hospitality to them. Lot wanted to serve them, but also he wanted to avoid being confronted, wanted them to be avoided uh, the confrontation of the men of the city. And then you see also here in verses 4 and 5, the perverted pursuit of the men of the city. It's obvious what they wanted because of what Lot then offered them in exchange. He offered them his daughters, which is really a disturbing attempt at protecting the angels. Isn't it? I mean, the city is so corrupt and Lot's even his being influenced by them. The perverted persistence of the men of the city is astounding. And then you see in verses 11, 10 and 11, the powerful protection of the angels and the continuing perverted craze of the men of the city. It took the power of these angels from God to grab Lot out, pull him into the house and shut the door and strike these men blind. And even though they're blind, they're still trying to find a way into the house. And they're, 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 their passions are that intense. The angel's evacuation of Lot's worldly and resistant family in verses 12 through 22, they, it's like they didn't want to leave. And certainly his sons in law felt that he was joking. And then God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the loss of Lot's wife in verses 23 through 29. It's interesting even that. Lot sort of reasons with the angels and said, can't you just save this little city so I can go there instead? That city was intended for judgment as well, and yet God was gracious. So what was the focal sin of Sodom and Gomorrah for which God destroyed their families, or God destroyed their cities? What was it? That's actually a debated topic nowadays. We'll talk more about that next week. But as I see it here, it is clearly the sins of sexual perversion, including homosexuality. You can see that not only from the men's wording here in the text, where you you see at the very beginning in verse 5, bring them out to us that we may know them, that we may be intimate with them. And of course, the, the very disturbing exchange that Lot presents to them, I will give you my daughters who are virgins. Please don't harm these men. But there's even something more clear in some later texts. And this is very important for you to know that there's actually other texts in the Bible that refer back to the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah and name them. For God did not spare the angels. 2 Peter 2, 4-10 God did not spare the angels when He sinned. When they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them into the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If He did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, 
a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood out on the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under judgment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. So in this text, it's a little bit more specific where it talks about their engaging in sensual conduct, defiling passions, lawless deeds. And then Jude brings it even more clearly, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, and here it is, pursued unnatural desire. That's the New Testament's description of homosexual, homosexual acts. Men with men, women with women. Unnatural desire included in sexual immorality. They serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of notice. Eternal fire it wasn't just this momentary fire that destroyed the city and caused these people to become extinct, but literally... One fire led to the eternal fire. Very sobering account from Genesis through to Jude. So then, what is God's evaluation of homosexuality according to Genesis 19 in these texts? Isn't it clear? It's absolutely clear. Homosexuality clearly is a detestable, damnable sin against God. Let's look at another text this morning. Leviticus 18, 20-30. In this text, God is giving His people specific delineations and applications of His command to sexual purity. That command is most broadly declared in the seventh commandment. You will not commit adultery. And from cover to cover of the Scriptures, God has made it unmistakably clear that an intimate sexual relationship is to be enjoyed only inside of the boundaries of marriage. One man and one woman in a monogamous covenant lifetime relationship. And that is commanded by God in the seventh commandment. And in Leviticus 18 here, God is explaining His prohibitions of specific sexual behaviors. His personal evaluation of these specific sexual behaviors and the mandatory consequences of his prohibition, if his prohibitions are violated. Notice as we read here, the community of prohibitions. Notice what sins are grouped together. It communicates a lot just to see what the family of, of, of behaviors here is. Verse 20, you shall not lie sexually with your neighbor's wife and so make yourself unclean with her. Verse 21, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male 
as with a woman. It is an abomination. You shall not lie with any animal, or so make yourself unclean with it. Neither shall any woman give herself to an animal to lie with it. It is perversion. Do not make yourself unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nations that was before you. For everyone who does any of these abominations, the person, persons who do them shall be cut off from among their people. So keep my charge never to practice any of these abomination, abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make, the, make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Verse 20, no sexual intimacy with your neighbor's wife. Verse 22, no offering of children to Molech. Verse 21. And verse 22, no sexual intimacy with a male as a man would with his wife. Verse 23, no sexual intimacy with an animal. This community of prohibitions includes sexual behaviors and that were part of the worship practices of the gods of the Canaanites. That's what you see here. Idolatrous sexual behaviors. So often those go together. So this text provides an unmistakably clear prohibition of both idolatry and the accompanying sexual perversions. But notice God's evaluation of these behaviors in this text. How many times does He call these behaviors an abomination? Verse 22. Verse 26. 27. 29. 30. That's pretty clear. What does that word mean? That's an important word to understand. God's estimation of these things. This isn't a light word. God views these behaviors as totally disgusting. Absolutely abhors them. They're repulsive to Him. Detestable to His holy character. He thinks of these behaviors as an abomination because He honors His own attributes above all else. And when His image bearers, human beings, Engage in these activities, they do not reflect the glory of His nature as they were created to do. So it's an assault to to His glory being reflected from them. And He thinks of these behaviors as an abomination because He loves His creatures. He loves us. and, And these activities destroy us. Physically, yes. Spiritually, whether whether we realize it or not. Whether someone admits it or not. God hates what violates His love for Himself. And He hates what violates His love for His creatures. God hates these things. And these behaviors do both. And look at the just consequences in this text. You see in verse 24, there, the words are, are just really uh, 
vivid. Driving out these, these foreign nations before Israel for engaging in these things. Vomiting them out. Verse 25, punishing them. Verse 29, cutting them off. They shall be cut off from among their people. Like it said in, in 2 Peter, He brought the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to extinction. That's what God thinks of these, these practices. God has a rightful claim to absolute obedience. Look how He con- concludes this section. He says, after stating all of this, He says, I am the Lord your God. That, that's all we need to know. right? And, and really when you see that, I am Yahweh, your God. God is our God and, and our Lord by, by creation. He made us. He owns us. But even more so with the Israelites, I am the Lord your God. What often follows that phrase? I'm the Lord your God who did what? Who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So, God owns His people not only by creation, but also by redemption. And so based on this text, is homosexuality a sin against God? You shall not lie with a male as with a woman is an abomination. It's absolutely a sin against God with that question. God views homosexual, homosexuality as a detestable, damnable sin. The final Old Testament text we need to look at this morning is then Exodus 20, or Leviticus 20, 10-16. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If a man lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood is on them. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. If a man takes a woman and her mother also, it is depravity. He and they shall be burned with fire, and and there may be no depravity among you. If a man lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal and lies with it, you shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. This is disturbing texts, are they not? I mean, just overwhelmingly. Adultery with a neighbor's wife. Sexual intimacy with a father's wife. Sexual intimacy with a daughter-in-law, verse 12. With, with another male, verse 13. With the woman and her mother, verse 14. Man, woman, with an animal. 15 and 16. And what are the just consequences of these behaviors according to God in this Word? Well, in, under the theocracy, every time, repeated, repeated, it's death. Death. Under God's theocracy in Israel. Verse 14, even by burning. This is, this is what these behaviors deserve before a holy God of heaven and earth because they are an infinite offense to His nature. Even though we don't live under the theocracy of Israel, and so we don't have the direct delegated authority of God or the immediate mandate from God to exercise capital punishment, 
for these sexual activities. That doesn't dismiss the absolute reality that these behaviors are worthy of death. In fact, every and any sin against God, our holy God, is worthy of His just sentence to eternal death and immediately the judgment of God. Remember, God has made this so very clear in Scripture from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. God looked at Adam and He said, the day that you eat of it, the day that you sin against My Word, you what? You will surely die. Ezekiel 18.20 The soul that sins shall what? Shall die. Romans 6.23 The wages, the compensation, the payment for sin is what? Death. It's clear everywhere across the Word of God. And the only reason that any one of us are not immediately ushered into the eternal righteous wrath of God and sentenced to eternal death is not because God is weak or because God is indifferent or God is being currently paid off by our attempts to appease Him, but because He's merciful. He's merciful and He's gracious and He's compassionate. He's patient towards sinners like us. But at the same time, don't assume that His mercy and His patience and grace nullifies His righteous evaluation of these sexual behaviors and somehow dismisses His just sentence that those who commit such acts are worthy of death. It's so very clear in Scripture. It's abundantly clear to anyone who reads the Old Testament and understands and interprets it normally and and accurately and fairly that God, while being merciful and gracious to those who turn from sin, and trust Him. He's merciful to them. But He also condemns homosexuality as a sin against His perfect law. Can you see that from these texts? And as horrific and abrasive as it is to hear, we must affirm the teaching of Scripture that God will justly condemn to His eternal punishment the homosexual and any other sinner who continues to willfully Pursue their sin without repentance. That's so very clear. The Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as sin. But again, remember, it is a sin that can be completely forgiven by the merciful, gracious Savior that we have. And we'll look at that in just a few moments. Well, someone might say, well, that was the Old Testament. And that Old Testament condemns homosexuality, but the New Testament is different. It allows it, doesn't it? Well, no. No, the New Testament also clearly condemns homosexuality as sin. This is a text we've looked at. And I'll just draw a few points from it. We've looked at this a few times over the last few weeks. Romans 1, 18-32 is the first text. And what you see here, first of all, is the deadly downward acceleration of depravity. That's what God describes first here, what the Apostle Paul writes about. There's Humanity apart from Christ is on this spiral downward. There are, we don't get better. Have you noticed? We get worse. Our sin gets more complicated. It, it gets more expressed. And so you see this spiral. First, the result of suppressing the truth 
of natural and special revelation, the result of suppressing truth is idolatry. Notice, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's what they do. God's, God's, God is, is angry with sinners because they, un, in their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And God has made the truth plain to every human being. What can be known about God is plain because God has shown it to them. God has shown to us His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature. Where do we see it? Where has God made it, been, made it, made it clear to us? It's clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So we're without excuse. We can look around at creation and we see that there is an almighty, eternal, glorious, powerful, wise Creator God. Creation makes that clear. And only that, of course, we have Scriptures to tell us who God is even more specifically and, and His plan of redemption. But what happens? Men suppress the truth. They don't want to hear that. They want to make room for their sin. So they suppress the truth. And what happens when you suppress the truth? Verse 21, Though they know God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. And here's what happens. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. When, human, when sinful human beings choose not to worship God and suppress the truth, they inevitably begin to worship something else. They worship themselves. They worship an idol. They worship a created thing. They worship a God of their own making, whether, whether it's a, a God that they find somewhere in creation or they make up, even from the Scriptures, that they change and suppress and twist. They make up a God of their own idea that accepts them their, their sin the way they want Him to. Well, then the spiral keeps going downward. When you, when you, when you suppress truth and embrace idolatry, the result of that idolatry is then enslavement to impure desires and enslavement to the expressions of dishonorable behaviors. You can see in the text, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. God gives them up to impure desires. God gives them up to dishonorable activities. And then the result of enslavement to those things, the result of that enslavement to impure desires and expressions of dishonorable behaviors is then the acceleration of dishonorable passions and the expression of unnatural and shameless behaviors. Specifically, sexual behaviors like homosexuality. Again, you see it. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They suppress the truth, embrace idolatry. In the embrace of idolatry, they grow in their impure desires and their dishonorable behaviors. And as that continues, God says, okay, have more of those dishonorable passions. And then unnatural behaviors result. 
their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. That's a classic description of homosexuality. This is the condition and the direction of all humanity apart from the saving power of Christ. Have you noticed this progression in society? It's absolutely everywhere. We've, we've, seen, we've seen the, it's almost like the snowball intensifies in recent days. In recent years, you could see the intensity of these things and how loudly they're blasted through media. And there's a sobering summary. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, right? they're suppressing the truth. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Think about it. The most... This, this, is, a, this is a lie from the evil one. Evil one would want sinners to think that it would be wonderful if God said to you, do what you want. That's the worst thing that God could say to you as a sinner apart from Christ. The most terrifying words that God could say to a group of rebels like us humans is go ahead, have your own way. This is what happens when God says, go ahead, have your own way. It's a spiral. A futile spiral downward. Look what it says. They were filled. That's terrifying. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Then a huge list here. Evil. Covetousness. Malice. Envy. Murder. Strife. Deceit. Maliciousness. Gossips. Slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent. Haughty. Boastful. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Foolish. Faithless. Heartless. Ruthless. We're filled with that. God says, have your own way. You become, we become filled with it. They know. They know God's righteous decree. They know them. And yet what? They still practice those things. And they also approve the practice of those things. This, this is the state of humanity living outside the saving grace of God in Christ Jesus. Every society goes down this trend when they suppress the truth. Suppression of truth Idolatry, impure desires, unnatural behaviors, destruction. You, you read the history books, and this is what happens. Am I right? That's what happens over and over again. It's the downfall of a society of people. It's sobering, it's chilling, and it's saddening, isn't it? It's a reality. This reality is heartbreaking because it's a, an affront to our great, good Creator, King, and Savior, And it's horrific because of the consequences that will come upon those who do not trust in Christ. So again, the text is quite clear. Very clear description of homosexual sin in verses 26 and 27. The second text we've also looked at in the New Testament here. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Again, the Apostle Paul makes it so clear here. He's so frankly clear. 
that these sinners will not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? What does it mean to inherit the kingdom of God? It means you've been given a new citizenship. A new kingdom. Not not earth, but Christ's kingdom. You have a new king, not yourself, not, not Satan, but Christ. Uh, you, you're a, you're a, you have a new protection over you by Christ from the evil one. You, you have a new provision. Your father provides for you as his child. It means you have a new allegiance. You have new passions. You trust in Christ. You're turning from sin. You, you have a new purpose. You're, you're an image bearer that is being recreated into the image of Christ. You have a new nature with a new heart. Old things are passed away. The new has come. That's, that's what it means to be to inherit the kingdom of God. Christ has given you the Holy Spirit. You're not perfect, but you're growing. And it means you will have a change of residence someday. When, when Christ returns or you die, you'll be with God, with Christ in His eternal kingdom and the new heaven and new earth. And so it should be obvious to us that men and women who love their sins the sins mentioned in these texts, all of them, and practice those sins, those who continue in them will not inherit the kingdom of God. It should be obvious. That's why Paul says, do you not know? Isn't this obvious to you? They won't inherit the kingdom of God. They can't. In fact, they don't want to. Really. They don't want to. They don't have a new nature. They don't have a new allegiance. Their allegiance is to themselves, their desires. They still have the nature that loves sin. They don't have a new citizenship. And they don't want those things. They don't even have the ability to desire them. That's what it means to not be able to inherit the kingdom of God. And if if that person stays in that sinful state, they, they, they won't enjoy the holiness of God and the new heaven and earth ever. They, they hate the holiness of God, in fact, right? They hate it. And they love their sin. And God loves, they love what God hates, and, and God hates what they love. And God will not tolerate unchanged sinners in his presence. That's absolutely clear. The unchanged sinners cannot stand in the holy presence of God, nor the assembly of those who have been made godly by mercy and grace. An unchanged sinner will not want to live in the presence of God as he truly is. The nature of the sinner and the nature of God couldn't be more opposed to each other. And that explains why Paul writes with this sense of edginess here. Don't you know this? You should know this. This is obvious. If you know anything about God and sinners, this will be absolutely plain to you. The unrighteous, sinners, lawbreakers will not inherit the kingdom of God. And As the text says, that includes those who practice homosexuality. Now there's two words that are wrapped up in that men who practice homosexuality phrase. There's one word, it's it's malakoi, and it means effeminate. And is referring to the male partners who are submissive in the sexual relationship. There's another word, arsenokoitai, This word literally means a man who lies with a male as with a female. And so that word refers to the male partners who are regressive in the sexual relationship. And I think, certainly I know that Paul is being very intentionally specific 
both parties, and this is an important argument to make because we'll talk about why next Sunday, but both parties in a homosexual relationship, the Apostle Paul makes certain that no party is involved, uh, no party involved in homosexual relationship is innocent of sin. And so Paul warns us do not be deceived. Don't be deceived about these things. And his words are right on time. Because there are many, even within the professing church, like we talked about, who are working diligently to convince the church that God is okay with homosexuality. And we'll talk more about the arguments next week. One more text to look at. 1 Timothy 1, 8-10. through 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 9. And please take note of all the Paul, that Paul is declaring in the context of homosexuality. Just notice this. We know that the law is good, Paul says, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the, and the disobedient, and for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. The law is laid down for the benefit of sinners. Those who truly see themselves as sinful. That's who the law is for. It's to, to know what God calls sin so that they would clearly know that those behaviors are an offense to God. And what are these sins that Paul lists here? Those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Again, God makes this so clear here in this text. So very clear. Homosexuality is one of the sins that God condemns by His good law. All of this, He says here, is contrary or in direct opposition to sound doctrine. He describes those who practice such things as lawless, disobedient, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane. The connection is very, very clear. I mean, Paul can't make it any clearer. God is holy. We are sinful under God's law. And all of us can find sin in this list that we've committed. Can't we? There's, there's something here that all of us have committed. Sin is sin. It is against the true teaching of God. And homosexuality is included here, again, as sin against God. So I don't know how you can come through all those six texts and say, no, it's not a sin. God makes it unmistakably clear. The Bible clearly condemns homosexuality as sin, but it's a sin that can be completely forgiven by our merciful and gracious God. I would say it's, it's time for some good news, don't you? I was awfully long with some heavy, heavy texts of Scripture. Is there hope for a homosexual to be reconciled to God? Is there hope for any sinner who has offended the holy God to be reconciled to Him? We, we can't forget the other texts other words around. We, we zeroed in on that one word because it's the, the theme, but so many other sins sweep us all in to this position of standing condemned before a holy God. 
Is there hope for us? And the answer of Scripture is a resounding yes. And that is the point of Scripture. It's not just to show us our sin, but to show us that there is forgiveness. Just as God is glorious in His just and righteous evaluation of homosexuality as sin, and just as God is glorious in His righteous punishment of the unrepentant homosexual in eternity, God is also glorious in His love, in His power to rescue and transform any homosexual, any sinner, who turns from their life of sin to trust in Jesus Christ and to follow Him as Lord in loyal, loving obedience to His will. And what I love about so many of these texts that we've been through, and I purposely left the verses off to the end, is that even as the author speaks of these sins that condemn us, just in the context, so close is the good news of salvation from sin to all who would turn from it and trust in Christ. For example, we looked at that lengthy text Romans 1, 18-32, but you back up and you see verses 16 and 17. It's so good of God to put those verses in right there to inspire them right even before you get to verse 18. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. Good news of salvation. It is the power of God for salvation. To who? To everyone who believes. Yes, Jewish people who've heard the law read to them their whole lives in the synagogue and also to the Gentile, the Greek person who lived like people in Ephesus, totally consumed by all the sexual depravity that we've been reading about. The Gospel is the good news because God's power doesn't just condemn, it also saves everyone who trusts in Him. Because in the Gospel, you see God's righteousness. Yes, the righteousness of God that condemns sinners justly, but also the righteousness of God through Christ's obedience that can be given to all who trust in Him. All of that sinfulness can be clothed in the righteousness of God. And it's revealed from faith. For faith, from beginning to end, dear ones, salvation is by faith. The righteous become righteous. They live spiritually by faith. Now there's a glorious invitation of hope. Come, trust in Christ in His saving work. Cast off your sin and you will be made righteous no matter what your sin is. Look at this again at the end of the section in 1 Corinthians. We, we've, we've gone through this verse already. Such were some of you. People in the body of Christ used to live that way. But you were washed. God did a deep cleansing. You were sanctified. He chose you. He set you apart. He made you holy. You were justified. You were declared righteous because of the saving work of Christ. His perfect life. His atoning death. His powerful resurrection. That can make any sinner clean. Any sinner. That is such glorious news. Any sinner. 
by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God applies the work of Christ to the sinner who believes. And look at this. We read in in 1 Timothy, but right then following, in accordance with the gospel of of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, I thank God who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Look what kind of sinner Paul was. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was insolent. But I received mercy. Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In spite of Paul's sin, God saved him mercifully, graciously. Because Christ died for him. God granted Paul faith and love through Christ. The saying is trustworthy. This is what Paul wants to shout from the housetops. This is a trustworthy saying. You need to hear this. You need to accept this. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Why does Paul say that? Because he wants the, the, the sinner who reads this text to know that if, that if God, if Christ saved him, then he can save anybody. But I received mercy. Paul received mercy that as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. And then he just breaks off into praise to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. If Paul can be saved, the chief of sinners, then any sinner can be saved because God is that merciful and God is that patient. Last text. Remember how 2 Peter separated the wicked from the righteous and showed how God will condemn the righteous and and included in there was a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, then Peter says this, don't overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. God is in perfect control of time. His judgment is right on schedule. He will fulfill His promises to bring the new heaven and new earth. He's not late. He's not, he's not unable to bring it in. He's not, he's not uh, indifferent about His promise. What is He doing? That's what He's saying here. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Later on in, in Peter's writing there, it says, consider the patience of the Lord as salvation. What's God doing? Don't confuse God's patience in judgment with His absence, or His apathy, or His inability. His patience is for the salvation of sinners. God intends to still save sinners. That's what this time is all about. Bringing people to repentance, including homosexual people. And His patience is giving sinners time to hear the truth, to hear the Gospel, to turn from sin and trust in Christ. So I would invite you this morning, if if you have not trusted in Christ, if you found yourself in one of these categories and you know you're under God's condemnation, will you hear God's Word and believe it this morning? 
don't spend the time of God's patience indulging in sin any longer. This is a precious time. No matter how your sin and unbelief have been lived out up to this point in your life, I urge you to reject the lies that you've believed that whatever sin you're practicing is satisfying. It's not. Turn away from the sin that you've pursued. Receive Christ. Rest in Him. Rest in all that He's done to save you. His perfect life. His atoning death. His resurrection. And you will be forgiven. You will be declared righteous by the righteousness of God. And you can rejoice in the life that that God has made for you and planned for you. Don't trust your own efforts to impress God or to make a new life for yourself. Don't start there. Don't trust any other human being to help you through it. Or other religion or some other earthly effort to make you a different person. All you need is Christ. Receive Christ. Rest in Him and what He has done for you alone. And you have God's promise that you will be changed, you will be delivered, you will be given the gift of eternal life. That's the object of your faith. Christ and the promise of God. Well, let's stand together and pray. Our Father, uh, please give us a firm conviction rooted in Your Word to know that sin is sin, but that Your your saving power can save from any sin. We pray that You would fill our hearts with that conviction and that, and that knowledge and the joy of salvation. But then also, Father, as we as Your people hear these things, may we remember them and be equipped with them to communicate them in love to those whom You bring to our, to our influence, Father. Help us not to be ashamed of the Gospel. Enable us to declare it boldly and clearly. The pressure of the world is very great. But help us to keep in mind not the pressure of the world and the the short-term condemnation condemnation we we might feel, but to keep in mind Your thoughts. Your estimation of sin and Your way of salvation. Help us to love the sinner who is arguing with us more than we love ourselves. Help us to remember that You have saved us and therefore You can save anyone. Use us, we pray, Father, in our community to share the Gospel. Fill us with Your Spirit and give us Your your ability to speak and live these things. For Your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.